Welcome. Welcome, friends, Federalists, to Ann Arbor and the University of Michigan Law School. Thank you all for coming through despite the cold. It's great to see so many suits here in Hutchins Hall. Uh, it may be the greatest confluence of formality within these walls since the 1950s. But truly, it's wonderful to see so many uh, conservatives and libertarians here. And for those curious non-federalists, we hope you enjoy the show. I am Craig Chosiad, the president of the University of Michigan chapter, and I'm delighted again to welcome you all here for the 27th Annual Federalist Society Student Symposium, The People and the Courts. Mr. Chief Justice John Marshall, in his opinion in Marbury v. Madison, wrote that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. The Federalist Society has adopted part of this famous dictum in our statement of purpose and has added a corollary. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. That warning was added after some felt that judges, typically an orderly and lawful group of individuals, got caught up in the liberal progressive idea of trying to make heaven on earth through the courts, if not through the Congress. It is an old and proud tradition of political conservatives to be anti-utopians. They do this not because they hate utopia, but because they understand it to be a lie. Utopianism, too, is old. Before it was the communists, it was the Jacobins. And before it was the Jacobins, it was various apocalyptic preachers who promised swift victory over evil and paradise here on earth. Seizing on this religious phraseology, the late William F. Buckley Jr., with his genius for incomprehensible vocabulary, helped popularize the slogan, Don't Immanentize the Eschaton, which was worn on buttons by the Young Americans for Freedom supporting Barry Goldwater for president in 1964. Don't immanentize the eschaton. Don't try to bring within the possible world the perfection possible only in the next. Just as Buckley helped form the conservative movement that nominated Goldwater in 1964, and elected Ronald Reagan in 1980 and 1984, out of nothing, so too did the Federalist Society form, out of nothing, the conservative legal movement of today. This movement, though new, could be viewed as part of the older conservative tradition rejecting utopianism. In this guise, it rejects the utopian view that law is the answer to every problem, and that if our laws fall short of perfection, it's the judge's job, not the legislator's, to make them better. Our symposium will try to address what a judge's job is, by looking at his or her relation to the people, that great mystery that periodically throws the rascals out of office, amends constitutions, and generally is a headache to anyone occupied with a difficult and very important job of trying to make heaven on earth today. This symposium would not have been possible without the support of many people. We'll save the full round of thank yous for the banquet on Saturday, but there is one thank you with which I would like to open. The University of Michigan Law School has been tremendously supportive of our effort to bring the symposium here to Ann Arbor. The staff and administration have been a great help, and we've met repeatedly with our dean, Evan Kamenker, who has been positively enthusiastic to bring this strange gathering here today. Before joining Michigan, Dean Kamenker worked in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice, taught law for nine years at the University of California, Los Angeles, and clerked for Justice William Brennan on the Supreme Court of the United States. Dean Kamenker now teaches constitutional law here at the University of Michigan Law School and assumed the deanship in 2003. Because of his true commitment to diversity of thought and his encouragement of civil debate, I would ask you to join me in thanking and welcoming the dean of our law school, Evan Kamenker. Thank you very much, Craig. And obviously, I want to start by thanking Craig and all the other incredibly hardworking students here at Michigan Law School who worked tirelessly to put together this, this incredible weekend. Uh, it's great to welcome all of you here. 
Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm gratified to learn that it is not only Michigan Law School students who refuse to sit in the front row. Um, we love actually having con uh, conferences of this sort with people coming from around the entire nation because it gives us an opportunity to prove several important things. Ann Arbor is not within the Arctic Circle, for example. Um, when, I, when I lived elsewhere and first came to Ann Arbor, I always assumed it was one of those places that I used to see on the TV where people would be walking around in the snow using canes or sticks to try and find their cars underneath the snow. Uh, this is a wonderful town, and I hope you find a wonderful law school. For those of you who have not had a chance to visit us before, uh, we certainly hope that you take the opportunity to, to look around, even outside of this conference, uh, and enjoy yourself while you are here. I almost couldn't say those remarks because when I woke up this morning and I saw that the weather report said we were going to get 10 inches or something like that of snow, I realized I'd be a hypocrite. Uh, but we pushed all that down to Ohio, as I understand it, so we're all, uh, we're all safe here. Um, I myself, as an academic, have participated in a couple of these conferences, and I just want to say I really enjoy uh, the format of this kind of conference. I think it's great to have a conference that, on the one hand, uh, has and pushes a particular perspective and ideology to some degree, and on the other hand, the whole point of it is to be open-minded and to debate, uh, not to proselytize, to test, to push ideas back and forth. Um, and, and one way I can just capture that moment is, uh, you know, Craig mentioned in his talk, uh, William Buckley, and we all obviously know of his unfortunate recent passing. Um, I do recall one moment, I can't remember why it was, but when I was clerking for Justice Brennan, I had uh, an occasion to be having lunch with him at a deli in Capitol Hill, and William Bucky, Buckley walked by. And he and the justice actually knew each other, not, not surprisingly, in those circles. And they had a nice little conversation about which I think they disagreed about everything except maybe what they were going to order. Um, but it was sort of it was representative of what is so great about the Federalist Society. It was here two, you know, learned men uh, going after each other in a very amicable way with a twinkle in each other's eyes. Uh, neither one was really going to persuade the other, I think we know, um, but they learned a slightly richer vocabulary for it and were, were the better for the conversation. So uh, let me just conclude by saying it's wonderful having seen you all in action on various occasions elsewhere. Uh, it's wonderful to have you here as part of our law school, and we hope that this weekend is as outstanding as all the other conferences that I participated in, and indeed, maybe the best ever. We always aspire to such. Uh, with that in mind, um, let me just start by kicking off the first panel for this evening. And uh, I don't know that there are any formal introductions that I will do. I think the first, the leader of the first panel, who is uh, Justice Maura Corrigan, will give more detailed introductions to the other members. It is my job simply to say, please welcome Justice Corrigan. Thank you, Dean, and thank you, Craig. And on behalf of my colleagues on the Michigan Supreme Court who will be joining you through this weekend, I welcome all of you to Ann Arbor and to Michigan and thank the University of Michigan Law School Federalist Society for sponsoring this uh, Student Federalist Society meeting. I would like to also note that this is the 25th anniversary year of the Federalist Society and the 30th year of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. And I think most interesting to the launching of that wonderful journal is that without financing provided by people right here in mid-Michigan, thanks to uh, Senator Spencer Abraham when he was a student, 
there wouldn't have been such a journal. So we're proud to welcome you to MidMichigan. I also um, was thinking about William Buckley uh, and all the wonderful articles I've read about him in the last couple of weeks um, and, and who should pervade the spirit of this weekend and um, kicking off where Craig began and where the dean continued. I would like to dedicate this panel and also I think this weekend to the memory and the spirit of William F. Buckley. I'd also like to dedicate it to my late husband, Joe Grano, who was the faculty advisor and a frequent participant in many Federalist Society debates for many years. You will recall that um, Bill Buckley started uh, National Review by, by saying that he was standing athwart history yelling stop. My husband would say, first of all, students, you must learn history even in order to be able to yell stop. And he would also famously say, to me at least, remember, Mora, that every day is a battle in the war of ideas. But um, Buckley did it well. He did it with spirit. Um, and he taught us, as Peggy Noonan wrote last week in her column, that despair really is a mortal sin. There is nothing to despair about in this country. My message to especially the students are, who are here, um, I derive from the words of Goethe, who said, and I quote, what you have is heritage, take now as task, for thus you will make it your own. And this weekend we will be listening and learning from one another about history, about what we think history has to say. And we will be focusing in this particular panel on whether pervasive judicial review in our country threatens to destroy our local identity by forcing on us homogeneous national norms. All of the speakers who are on tonight's panel are going to be looking at this problem through various prisms and philosophical perspectives. And I think the principal focus of this um, particular panel may well be on the topic of religion, on items like school prayer at football games, on public funding of religious schools, or um, denial of public funding for religious vocations, we will also, I think, have some discussion on social welfare programs um, and values that are invoked there. I have told each one of the speakers that they have 15 minutes to open, and this is wonderful for me. I am rigorously going to enforce these time limits. Um, after they each make their opening remarks, we'll open it up to their questions and comments to each other, and then, of course, to your comments and questions. Our very first speaker on this panel is Professor Douglas Laycock and a name well-loved by me, certainly. Douglas Laycock is the Yale Commissar Professor of Law here at the University of Michigan Law School. He has published many articles on religious liberty and other issues involving constitutional law um, and two books on the law of remedies. He is very actively involved in religious liberty issues in our courts and legislatures as well as in his law review writing. He's an experienced appellate Litigator, He has argued in the Supreme Court of the United States in public and behind the scenes. Um, he has clients across the religious and political spectrum. He is a graduate of Michigan State University, the University of Chicago, and a member of the Council of the American Law Institute. He has previously taught at the University of Chicago and the University of Texas at Austin. So to lead off our panel, won't you join me in welcoming Professor Laycock.
And the organizers know that organizing a group of law professors can be like herding Schrodinger's cats. And they probably thought I was an example of it, but my email said 645. That's my defense for wandering in when I did. Um, because they worried about managing us, you know, they they gave us a pricey of this panel, but they didn't give it to you. I think they didn't want to be embarrassed if we ignored it and talked about something completely different. Um, but it's a problem for me because I actually wanted to talk a little bit about what they told us to talk about. So let me quote just a couple of sentences. Uh, the pricey that the speaker's got said that it's a basic assumption of federalism that individual communities can be different. No disagreement so far. It is a benefit of federalism that people can vote with their feet and migrate to communities that share their values and whose laws enable their liberty. Uh, but does pervasive judicial review threaten to destroy local identity by homogenizing uh, community norms? There's more in that vein, and there's some illustrative examples. And finally, the provocative question of whether the Constitution really requires the separation of God and football um, which is a question I'll return to. But I want to talk about this idea of voting with your feet, which is pretty common in the federalism literature. Uh, and it's a phrase uh, that has always troubled me. Um, there, there are matters in which voting with your feet is an appropriate second best solution, and it's a good thing we're always free to vote with our feet if we have to. Um, but there are many things in which it seems to me voting with your feet is not a, a desirable solution at all. It's a last resort. And the task is to tell the difference. Uh, and that resolves itself into a debate over which rights to constitutionalize and over the scope of each constitutional right, or the appropriate scope. And we have great debates about those questions, and we take different views, and some people want to interpret some rights narrowly and other rights broadly, and some people have exactly the opposite preferences. Uh, but we debate this um, constitutional right by constitutional right. Um, and unless your view is, Lino Grali, is that there just shouldn't be constitutional rights, that the, whole, the whole concept of the Bill of Rights is a bad idea, uh, unless you go to that extreme, I don't think this debate over the appropriate scope of rights can be reduced or short-circuited into any notion of voting with your feet. Voting with your feet is a sugar-coated way to describe driving dissenters out of the community. Runaway slaves were voting with their feet. Darfurians fleeing to Chad are voting with their feet. Uh, ethnic cleansing is a way of encouraging people to vote with their feet. Now, the people who wrote our panel description didn't mean any of that. Uh, but the difference between those examples and what they were thinking about has nothing to do with the concept of voting with your feet. It has to do with... The difference is uh, the nature of the rights being violated, the nature of the deprivations uh, being imposed on those rights that led people to vote with their feet. Uh, to tell the difference, we have to talk about specific rights and the nature of the deprivation. Um, federalism is for sure a prominent feature of our Constitution. Federalism assumes there will be differences from state to state. Uh, within states, we rely heavily on local government, and that assumes uh, that there will be some differences from town to town or between rural and urban areas. Uh, but there are also countervailing ideas that are prominent in our Constitution. Uh, we are one nation, indivisible, the Pledge of Allegiance says. And an American is free to go anywhere in this country as a visitor or as a new permanent resident. A person born in the United States is a citizen of the state wherein he resides. 
When I moved from Texas to Michigan, Michigan couldn't say no. The law school could, the university could, no one had to hire me, but the state had to accept me as a citizen. Uh, and even before that, even before I established residence, when I was just looking around and exploring opportunities, uh, the Constitution said Michigan couldn't discriminate against me while I was visiting here. Uh, <clears throat> Michigan owed me all the privileges and immunities of a citizen of Michigan, which doesn't mean quite what it says and requires some interpretation, but it's a pretty sweeping guarantee of interstate equality. The notion that Michigan could choose to make my life intolerable and induce me to vote with my feet and go somewhere else is in sharp tension with those constitutional rights to travel and to establish a new residence anywhere in the country. Now, it's equally obvious once I get here, I can't insist that Michigan do everything just to my liking so that I won't feel pressured to vote with my feet. Uh, I am not the czar of Michigan. I have no more rights than any other citizen of Michigan. There obviously can't be 10 million czars. So on most issues, we vote. On some issues, we create and enforce individual rights. And the argument is about which issues should be the subject of individual rights and which issues should be left up to votes. The individual rights we've created are important. Some of their applications are controversial, but they are not especially numerous. It is absurd to suggest that judicial review is pervasive, as the panel description did. Every state has thousands of statutes. Every town has at least hundreds. Most of them have never been challenged. Uh, most of them would be upheld without serious argument if they were challenged. Vast areas of social, economic, and regulatory policy are left to the political process. Um, individual rights are concentrated in a few areas, in a few areas that tend to be unusually important to individuals. Speech, religion, fair procedure, equality of treatment, uh, core rights of property ownership. Most of those are also very important to the functioning of a democratic government. And ownership of guns, if the court reads the Second Amendment according to its text. It's certainly one of those rights that is very important to many Americans, however abhorrent it may be to many other Americans. By protecting individuals with respect to the things they are likely to feel very strongly about, uh, we reduce the occasions on which they have to vote with their feet. And that's a good thing. Voting with your feet is very expensive. Right? It can separate families. It can require you to leave jobs. It is an obstacle to trade. Uh, forcing people to choose their residence on grounds of political acceptability is bad for the economy, if nothing else. Um, the national floor under rights uh, protects individuals from that kind of pressure. Uh, it's essential to the right to travel and live throughout the country, and it is therefore essential to national unity. Right? Abolitionists certainly, Republicans probably, could not safely travel in the South in the 1850s. They could vote with their feet and stay out of the South, and most of them did, but that was not a good thing. And the same is true of some rights today. Uh, Alan Brownstein, who is an observant Jew teaching in the law school at the University of California, Davis, uh, says very eloquently uh, when he describes this, the school prayer cases made it possible for families like his to leave the Jewish community in Brooklyn and move anywhere they wanted, including relatively small and relatively rural communities like Davis, where California chose to put its ag school. And he's right about that. Uh, the vote with your feet ideology encourages people to segregate themselves on ideological lines. All the conservative Republicans go here. All the really, really conservative Republicans go over there. And all the Democrats go uh, somewhere else. Uh, and that is, the more that happens, that is very dangerous uh, to national unity. Our politics feels polarized today. We talk about red states and blue states, but 
it could be a lot worse, and it has been a lot worse. In the reddest of red states, Utah, uh, John Kerry got 26% of the vote without campaigning. And most of those 26% are happily living in, with their neighbors in Utah. In the bluest of blue states, in Massachusetts, George Bush got 36% also without campaigning. And in 34 of the 50 states, the loser got more than 40% of the votes last time around. That is very different from 1860, where Lincoln got no votes anywhere in the South. Um, carried to its logical conclusion, voting with your feet sorts people out into states with little in common and with the risk of separation that that implies. Um, it is a very good thing that most states are not really red or blue, but various shades of purple. Uh, finally, let me say a little bit about, it's less abstract, say a little bit about specific examples. What about separating prayer and football? Um, I actually represented in the Supreme Court the parents who objected to prayer at high school football games in Texas. It was a case about two religions in Texas. Um, and I, in other cases, I've represented evangelical students who were seeking freedom to speak about religion. Uh, and evangelical churches challenging government regulation to burden their exercise of religion. And in the football prayer case in Santa Fe, in a sense, I did both. One of the families objecting to prayer at football games was a Baptist family. It was fed up with the school uh, hassling them about religion and shoving religion down their throat at every opportunity. Uh, sometimes, uh, some towns have a value, community value, uh, of imposing religion on everyone at every opportunity at public events. Other towns have a value that religion is like pornography, not to be seen or heard in public. Uh, and I've advocated individual rights uh, uh, in both those kinds of towns, the right to speak in your private capacity about religion in a public place, including in public schools, uh, and the right to attend public events, attend governmental functions without having to participate uh, in someone else's prayer service at the beginning. Um, I think we all agree that religious liberty, one of the things that re religious liberty means is no mandatory church attendance. Right? The state could not pass a law that says we don't care which, which church or synagogue you go to, but go to one once a week um, on pain of criminal penalty. Um, <clears throat> no one proposes that, but in these towns where every governmental event begins with a short prayer service, we get uh, a modest equivalent of that. The time is shorter, the time commitment is shorter, uh, but people are in effect forced to participate in someone else's religious observance as a price of participating in public business. Now we can argue about whether that, whether they should just go with the flow, whether they should view that as de minimis, whether there should be constitutional protection against that, or uh, whether the community interest outweighs the individual interest. Uh, but the argument on the individual side is a serious argument. Um, and, and the sense of violation of individual conscience for some believers of other faiths and for some non-believers uh, is very strong. And whatever we do with that particular example, we need to think through that particular example. We should not flippantly say the community can do what it wants, and if you don't like it, uh, vote with your feet. Um, now, in addition, the strong desire to impose the majority's religion on everybody in town at every available opportunity it's often associated with other kinds of intolerance. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Santa Fe, Texas, where the football prayer came from. 
it's a little unfair. Santa Fe is an extreme case. Um, it's not entirely representative. Uh, but the differences are matters of degree. Um, <clears throat> towns that have produced this kind of litigation tend to produce other kinds of impositions on individual conscience uh, as well. In Santa Fe, a number of teachers still had uh, prayer, were still conducting prayers in the classroom every day. Uh, the litigation in Santa Fe actually began with an incident in which one of the school teachers passed out flyers for a Baptist revival meeting. And one of his students asked if you could attend if you weren't Baptist. And he said, well, what are you? And she said, I'm a Mormon. And he spent the next 10 minutes denouncing Mormons as an evil cult. Um, Santa Fe has had uh, incidents. Uh, Santa Fe distributes Bibles every year. And, uh, and, and, and the children's Baptist family reported that uh, you know, when they didn't take a Bible on the ground that they already had plenty, uh, they got pushed and shoved and hassled over not taking Bibles. We've had incidents with the Klan and Vietnamese shrimp fishermen in Santa Fe. Uh, and the only Jewish kid in town, they did have to vote with their feet and leave town. Their son was being beaten up on the school bus, and the school claimed to know nothing or to be unable to do anything about it. Um, all those problems in one town is an extreme example, but all, all those problems are related to the kind of view that says, you know, do it our way or leave. Uh, vote with your feet. At the other end... There's a case going on in New York City right now, the Bronx Household of Faith versus the New York City Board of Education. That litigation is now in its 13th year. The case was filed in 1994. It has been to the Court of Appeals four times, about to be argued again later this month. Uh, in the meantime, there have been two Supreme Court decisions in point, one of them unanimous, both going against the school board. Um, and the school board is still litigating, claiming that, it is dis that those cases are distinguishable. And what is the issue? Well, uh, the school board rents its facilities to community groups over the weekend. Uh, the Bronx Household of Faith is a church group that wants to rent uh, one of these school facilities over the weekend, and they say, nope, no religious speech anywhere in our school. Well, that's a community value, and the New York Board of Education is obviously very committed to that value. Uh, but they're wrong. They're discriminating on the basis of a core constitutional right. They're suppressing freedom of speech. They're making viewpoint distinctions within speech. Um, the Bronx Household of Faith and its members should not have to move to Alabama uh, or Texas to find a, a, a place where they can exercise their liberty. I'm, 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 I'm glad we have a constitutional right to free speech, and sooner or later we'll be honored even in uh, New York. Um, <coughs> You know, the examples don't all come from religion. The, the, the folks who uh, think that uh, the, the, uh, that there ought to be more action on community values with respect to football prayer probably overlap quite a bit with the folks who think that Kilo was a terrible decision. There ought to be more judicial review of how some communities choose to exercise their eminent domain power. Um, you know, the gun case is a case where uh, community values differ very, very sharply. Uh, we've had a few towns try to force everyone to carry guns, and that didn't go anywhere. Um, and we've got other towns that want to ban all guns, and, and it would be entirely appropriate if the court found some sort of individual right there. Um, individual rights serve a purpose. I know that no one in the Federal Society really disagrees with that, uh, but the vote-with-your-feet rhetoric um, tends to imply disagreement with that. The, the question is not uh, should communities always win and should people vote with their feet and leave for friendlier communities. The question is what should be the scope of each of our constitutional rights. We haven't always gotten the answers to those questions right, but I think on the whole, over the long run of history, we haven't done 
uh, that bad for a set of institutions run by human beings. Thank you, uh, Professor Laycock, for opening. And let me ask those standing in the back, you're welcome to come down and take seats here while I introduce our next speaker. Our next speaker is Professor Roderick Hills, who is a professor at New York University School of Law, the William T. Comfort Professor at Law at NYU. He spent 12 years here at U of M as an associate and full professor before going to New York. He's a Yale undergrad and law school, later served as a law clerk to Judge Patrick Higginbotham of the Fifth Circuit, and uh, currently um, he teaches and writes in a variety of public law areas, constitutional law, local government, land use regulation, jurisdiction, conflicts of law, education. His interest in these topics springs from their common focus on the problems of decentralization. Hence, I think his, um, his relevant contribution to this panel. Uh, Professor Hills also serves um, in many cases as counsel for the ACLU. He's filed briefs in cases challenging the denial of domestic partnership benefits right here in Michigan, the exclusion of prison inmates from the protections of state anti-discrimination, denial of rights to challenge prison guards' visitation by family members for prison inmates, and discrimination of recently arrived indigent migrants in public assistance. So uh, we look forward to hearing from Professor Hills. Professor Hills, thank you. Thanks, Justice Corkin. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I, you know, I spent 12 years in Michigan, and then I voted with my feet and skedaddled to Brooklyn just a couple years ago. Um, but I come back, and I wonder sometimes, do I make the right decision? It's a beautiful place and a wonderful community. And um, what I want to talk today about is something that Doug alluded to, um, which is the idea of national rights and the relationship of federalism to national rights. Um, my main goal is to make sure I finish in 10 minutes. I think I can do it because I don't have a lot to say. Um, my essential question I want to ask Doug and the rest of the panel and you is um, whether federalism is a mechanism by which we choose rights. Let me explain. Um, you can imagine choosing rights deductively or inductively. You can imagine choosing rights through abstract text, original understanding, and history very abstract principles, and deducing from these principles all the minor ingredients of the rights. Call that the French way. Or, and it certainly is the geometric style of French rights reasoning even today, or you could imagine trying to figure out what our rights ought to be from our practical experience of what the consequences of different rights are, and also about what our values are through asking people. Um, if you have the latter idea, I want to call that inductive. In other words, you'd hold lots of polls to see where we have deep national consensus and where we find deep national consensus. And also when we see that the consequences of different rights seem to be beneficial, we might nationalize them. Now, if you have that latter inductive view of rights, federalism is not a qualification of rights. It's the way rights are created. And I think that's the American way. 
Now, the reason I say this is our Bill of Rights, of course, was not sprung out of the head of Jefferson or Adams. It came from a bunch of state constitutions. Indeed, the Bill of Rights was simply a bunch of state constitutions, Bill of Rights, stapled together and collated with all the outliers eliminated. The idea is we want to choose those rights on which there's a national consensus. And so in 1791, Madison presented a list of rights. But they were rights that first were tested, field tested, as it were, in the states. And they were rights on which there was deep national consensus, precisely because many different regions like those rights. Now, the court also observes this method of choosing rights. How do we decide whether a right in the Bill of Rights is incorporated through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment? Again, we don't do some deep Rawlsian calculus. We count states. Duncan v. Louisiana says, look at those rights that are deeply widespread, like the right to jury trial and the petit criminal jury. That right will nationalize. What about civil jury? No, too many outliers. We've got some civil law states like Louisiana. What about grand jury? No, too many states don't have that one. We're not going to nationalize that one. It's not fundamental in the inductive sense. That is to say, it has not been field tested and found successful in enough states. Likewise with substantive due process. If you look at the court's recent jurisprudence on things like physician-assisted suicide or um, same-sex sexual intercourse, Justices like Kennedy count states, and they say, you know, if there's a huge gravitational pull of states in one direction, we might nationalize that right. But if it turns out that, for instance, a constitutional right to physician-assisted suicide has not been accepted in a lot of states, we're not going to nationalize it. Likewise, in Troxel, a case that dealt with grandparent visitation, the court counted, literally counted, the number of states that allowed or required grandparent visitation, and then concluded by a plurality, we are not going to constitutionalize a right against grandparent visitation. Too many states allow or require it. We will constitutionalize a much weaker form of right, a right for parents' views about whether grandpa and grandma should visit, um, to be taken into account. But we refuse to constitutionalize a broad right against mandatory grandparent visitation because we've counted the states and we've seen in the field tests that is not a right that should be nationalized because there's no deep national consensus in favor of it. All of this, of course, can be summarized by Article 5, which is precisely simply a polling mechanism. You hold lots and lots of state polls, and the ones that survive the process, the rights that survive the process, they're promoted. Um, the French don't have such a mechanism. Now, I mention this because if you have this view of federalism as the premier mechanism to nationalize rights, then you might want to endorse what I'm going to call the Westphalian theory of rights. And I call it the Westphalian theory after, of course, the 1648 Peace of Westphalia, in which a civil war, a bitter religious civil war that tore Germany apart for 30 years, was settled by saying we're going to minimize the number of rights we nationalize. They had a few, very few, narrow number of religious rights to domestic devotions, which they nationalized. Then they said on other areas that are highly sensitive and controversial, we're going to devolve those issues to the lender. At that time, not the lender, but to the territorial estates, the duchies and the bishoprics that made up the Holy Roman Empire. And the theory was, these are issues on which we're bitterly divided. If we were to nationalize either version of a right, either the Catholic version or the Protestant version, then we would end up causing a civil war. So rather than trying to nationalize anything about which there's not a strong German consensus, we're going to devolve those sensitive issues. Now, if you applied the Westphalian theory in the United States, I think you'd have a three-part test for nationalizing rights and for not nationalizing rights. First, you'd ask, is there deep disagreement about the definition of rights? 
Second, you'd ask, is there heterogeneous subnational populations that have greater consensus about those rights than the national population? And third, you'd say, look, is the disagreement at least moderate enough that different subcommunities can tolerate the idea of other subcommunities going the other way without feeling that the very idea of unified national citizenship is going to be eroded? And if the answer to the first is there's deep disagreement, and the second is there are heterogeneous subnational communities that disagree less, and third, if it won't erode our sense of national citizenship to allow the subcommunities to go different ways, then I say don't nationalize the right. And that really means that judges will have to conduct the following psychologically painful experiment akin to the Chevron test with administrative agencies. They will have to forego their ideal theory of rights, their deductive theory of rights, when there's disagreement about the scope of a right in favor of a right for which there's consensus. That is to say, you might have an ideal theory of, say, religious free exercise. It might make a lot of sense. It's coherent, it's parsimonious, it meets all the law review standards for being a good theory. And you might think that outliers on that theory, you know, are deeply mistaken. But if there's deep disagreement about the theory in the nation, and if the rival theories are plausible, reasonable, within the bounds of what we think is acceptable in terms of national citizenship, then you can't nationalize your theory. Now, that might seem uncontroversial, but in a second I want to show you how difficult it is for both conservatives and liberal judges to observe this Westphalian theory, restraining themselves from nationalizing rights on which there's no consensus. Because essentially it requires you only to nationalize theories of rights, which you often think are second best. Now, I think the Rehnquist Court succeeded in adhering to this Westphalian theory in a case I think Doug passionately disagrees with, and that's why I thought I'd talk about it a little bit, because I think they got it exactly right. The case is Locke v. Davey. Um, the case involves Josh Davey, a Washington State resident who wants to study theology and business administration at an evangelical Protestant school in Washington. Now, Washington provides these state scholarships to people who, who want to study if they have Josh's grades and his, he, Josh's very moderate income. His family doesn't have a lot of money. But they only provide you with the money if you're not going to study religion. Now, I mean, I should say, if you're not going to study religion for the end of worship. Um, they, in other words, discriminate on the basis of what you want to study. If you want to study religious instruction or religious worship or theology, then they're not going to give you money. If you want to study anything else, they will. On one perfectly coherent deductive theory of rights, we should overrule what Washington did. They're discriminating on the basis of religious viewpoint. They're singling out one group um, in a way that the Supreme Court has suggested in other cases should not be allowed um, because it's essentially a violation of the, either the free exercise of religion or maybe free speech. But here's the dilemma. For a huge part of this country's history, a very large part of the community has believed in a rival and mutually exclusive right, a right not to have their tax dollars go to religious study. Now, you might disagree with this theory, but it's a theory held in passionate good faith. Call it the no-aid theory. We cannot give aid to religion. Um, it's often called the separationist theory. I don't know if I agree with it, but I think it's plausible is often accompanied by special exemptions to religion from generally applicable laws. That is to say, we won't give you any money, but we'll also exempt you from a lot of regulatory burdens that other people have to face. And the idea is we want to sort of separate the state and the church in a way that will make sure that churches 
you know, are denied some benefits that other people get, but also get some special benefits of isolation. They, according to the theory, are useful to prevent religious from, religions from being established. I do not want to defend this theory. I merely want to say that if you're a Westphalian about rights, you cannot prohibit the theory. That is to say, you cannot nationalize the anti-discrimination theory and wipe out the no-aid theory, because the no-aid theory has a lot of popular support and deep historical resonance. It has not been defeated in the state field tests. Many state constitutions constitutionalize, including Washington, the no-aid theory. And that's exactly what Locke v. Davy holds. Rehnquist, writing for the majority in Locke v. Davy, does not have a coherent theory of religion. He writes an opinion that essentially says, look, lots and lots of states adhere to the no-aid theory. For many, many years they've adhered to this theory. We cannot constitutionalize a theory of religious liberty that would outlaw a plausible theory of religious liberty because that would in itself violate a meta-right, a right for reasonable disagreement about what a right should be, a right to give each theory of rights equal respect and concern when they're plausible and they don't undermine a unified system of national citizenship. In conclusion, since I didn't make my 10-minute goal, I want to suggest to conservatives out there that it's going to be very challenging for you to have the forbearance and tolerance to stick with the Westphalian theory. Now, many conservatives, most famously Scalia in his dissent in Casey, suggested such a theory. He said, you know, it would be a great idea if on abortion different states went their own way because this is a deeply divisive issue on which there's no national consensus. But Scalia, of course, dissented in Locke v. Davy. And he pushed the anti-discrimination theory, saying we should outlaw the no-aid theory. Likewise, other Federalist lovers, like Justice O'Connor, called for the enforcement of a broad public use theory in Kelo in dissent. Even when there's a rival theory of eminent domain powers in many regions of the country, on, and there's no consensus whatsoever on public use. Thomas is an advocate of Federalism. But he calls for a colorblind constitution, even when there's a rival theory about racial equality, allowing so-called benign racial classifications and no deep national consensus in the field test from the states on what our rule on race should be. So the willingness to curtail your own ideal and controversial theory of rights in the name of regional diversity will depend upon your tolerance for uncertainty about the law and legal materials. If you have that kind of tolerance, I think you have an inductive theory, and you won't nationalize anything that has a, one, a significant amount of support in the states. And if you have that theory, I think you'll think that Locke v. Davy, for instance, is rightly decided, and that the three dissenters I've just mentioned in Kelo, in Grutter, and in Locke v. Davy were mistaken. Thanks. Thank you, Professor Hills, for your provocative remarks. And next, we'll hear from Professor Garnett. Again, I invite persons standing in the back to come and take seats. There's plenty of seats down here. We're going to hear from Professor Richard Garnett next. He is an associate professor of law at Notre Dame Law School, where he teaches and writes about criminal law, capital punishment, religious freedom, and freedom of speech. He has a BA in philosophy, summa cum laude, from Duke University, and his JD from Yale. He was an editor of the Yale Journal of Law and Humanities. Uh, Professor Garnett, um, before he came to Notre Dame, served as a law clerk to Chief Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist in 1996 
and previously to Chief Judge Richard Arnold of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. He practiced law at the Washington, D.C. law firm of Miller, Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin, specializing in criminal defense, religious liberty, and education reform matters. Won't you welcome Professor Garnett? Thank you, Judge. I have to start by just setting myself in firm opposition to the separation of God and football. Um, we at Notre Dame have seen what happens when God shuts his eyes on football. We, <laughs> and uh, we don't want to see that again. Unite them once again. Well, okay, it is, um, as Professor Laycock pointed out, uh, our conference program says that it's a basic assumption of federalism that individual communities can be different, that they can have different values, that they can have different laws. And this is certainly true. At the same time, as Professor Laycock pointed out, it's a basic assumption of our federalism that we, the people, are committed to some shared values and that our individual communities are bound by some shared laws. There's a reason why these distinct communities, our distinct local communities, came together as they have to form a more perfect union. The union is not an accident. We have a shared national project. So the hard questions then, it seems to me, are not so much whether local variation and experiments are good, because they are. It is how we should identify the shared values that will sometimes trump and how we should decide when they trump. Now, our program also asks, uh, does pervasive judicial review threaten local identity by homogenizing community norms? Again, the short answer here is yes, of course it does. That is, pervasive judicial review certainly does threaten to destroy local identity. But to say this is not to criticize judicial review or to celebrate excessively local identity. It's just a fact. And this fact provides, among other things, a good reason to make sure that judicial review is no more pervasive and threatening than our Constitution allows or our commitments to self-government warrants. Now, it's true, again, that an important feature of our federalism is variation and variability among local communities. And it's also true that some values and some norms have been homogenized, not always by judicial review, but by the ratification of the Constitution and its amendments. The Constitution, after all, is the supreme law of the land, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. Now, of course, just citing the Supremacy Clause doesn't answer all the hard and interesting questions that uh, today's program uh, raises. Still, it does remind us that the text and the history and the structure and the theoretical premises of our Constitution, they point toward, sort of in a Janus face type way, the importance of both diverse local laboratories of democracy and our larger national community. And so vindicating the values and the aims of the national community will sometimes, but only sometimes, require limiting the expression in law of local majorities' values. Now, for what it's worth, I tend to think that our Constitution's liberty-protecting structural features, including our federalism, I tend to think of them in terms of enumerated powers rather than in terms of states' rights or communities' rights. That is, it seems to me that our Constitution, and other Constitutions could do this differently, but our Constitution appreciates and reflects and protects localism in a particular way, namely 
by stating clearly that the national government and its various branches have only the powers that are delegated to it by we the people through the Constitution. And so federal courts do have the power to decide cases arising under the Constitution. But they do not have the power, at least I don't think the Constitution gives them this power, to survey the national scene looking for local values and community norms that are in need of homogenization. They don't have the power to search the landscape for abstract rights and liberties that are somehow in need of judicial vindication. That said, though, a federal court sometimes in the context of a particular case will and should refuse to enforce a law that reflects the values of a particular community. Such a refusal can be seen, there's no getting around it, as judicial interference with community values. And sometimes such a refusal will result in homogenizing of norms. So it seems to me that our Constitution makes some such interference unavoidable. The question for us, then, for we Federal Society members who take seriously the Constitution's structure and its text, is not so much whether federal courts may or should interfere with values of the community, but when and how they may do so. And in my view, both the Constitution and sound political theory uh, counsel deference and restraint on the part of judges. So to say that federal judges may and should refuse to give effect to local laws and values that conflict with constitutional guarantees, sometimes, is not to say that they should do so lightly or quickly or too often. Our Constitution does commit us as a national community to certain values. At the same time, an appreciation for the values associated with localism and an appropriate humility when it comes to second-guessing politics, these will inspire wise judges to be cautious and deferential and to hesitate before declaring that a particular expression of local values is trumped by those of the union. So how do we get it right? How do we find the line or strike the balance? Uh, in my view, and admittedly I'm a bit biased here, but the judicial philosophy of my former boss, the, the late Chief Justice Rehnquist, is a big help. Uh, if you remember, this idea of judicial philosophy is tricky. It's tiring work tracking it down. In recent confirmation hearings, we saw staffers scouring through John Roberts's um, White House counsel memos or Sam Alito's undergraduate thesis or even Harriet Meyer's kind of painful thank you notes. Um, <laughs> as it happens, though, Rehnquist provided a very reflective and revealing statement of his philosophy just a few years after, the join, uh, after joining the court in a famous essay called, at least famous to me, uh, The Notion of a Living Constitution. Now, Rehnquist's aim in critiquing this notion, and in so doing, appearing to be a champion, sort of a necrophiliac champion of a dead constitution, uh, his aim was to insist and to ensure that we the people, the ultimate source of authority in the nation, he called us, acting through our politically accountable representatives, that we retain the right to serve as the agents or not of constitutional change. So what animated this essay was not a foolhardy attachment to the status quo or sort of a misguided view that the founders had all the answers to every 21st or 20th century uh, economic question. Right? It was instead just a clear-eyed appreciation for this tension that can exist between the anti-majoritarian facets of judicial review and the political theory that's basic to a democratic society. Now, in the years after he wrote that essay, he developed and I think defended ably uh, this basic judicial philosophy. And I think his big picture view of our Constitution uh, and of the government that it constitutes uh, were captured really well in just two 
quotations taken from two of his better-known opinions. And so I'm going to read, uh, read these to you. The first is from uh, his opinion for the court in United States versus Lopez, which I'm sure most of you have read. And he wrote, The Constitution creates a federal government of enumerated powers. As James Madison wrote, The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. This constitutionally mandated division of authority was adopted by the framers to ensure protection of our fundamental liberties. The second passage is this from his dissent in the flag burning case, Texas versus Johnson. The court's role, he said, as the final expositor of the Constitution is well established. But its role as a platonic guardian admonishing those responsible to public opinion as if they were truant school children has no similar place in our system of government. These two passages, it seems to me, go a long way in presenting the vision that animated Rehnquist's work on the court. And I think they're also useful guides to anyone seeking to find the balance mentioned earlier, seeking to answer the questions this panel raises. So Rehnquist was a Federalist in a Madisonian sense. He, he believed that we the people had authorized our courts, our legislators, our federal administrators to do many things, but not everything. The nation's powers, he thought, they're vast where they exist, but they're also divided, few, and defined. And so Congress may not pursue every good idea or smart policy or worthy end, and nor should courts invalidate every foolish one or even every immoral one. The point of this arrangement, this constitutional experiment in institutional design, was not simply to hamstring good government, as it's sometimes said. It really was to ensure protection of our fundamental liberties, including thinking of today's topic, our liberty to govern ourselves in our local communities. That is, this experiment in institutional design sought to protect liberty by dividing, enumerating, and structuring power. And the Constitution's structural features, Rehnquist thought, they shouldn't be left entirely to the care of those branches of government that might not have an interest in their health. The structure of government matters to the well-being and to the flourishing of persons, and it matters to the identity and self-government of communities. And so it's appropriate for courts to enforce the boundaries that are inherent or involved in these structural features. So, so far we see Rehnquist's philosophy perhaps pointing toward a more interventionist or quote-unquote activist stance. But then on the other side, in Texas versus Johnson, the dissent underscores a uh, companion commitment, if you want, to modesty with respect to moral controversies and debatable policies and community values. Many regard Rehnquist's platonic guardian's line as little more than disingenuous cover for right-wing activism. I think this charge is, is misplaced. Uh, I don't think it's arrogant or illegitimate for a judge to enforce the Constitution's structural features. And I also don't think it's disingenuous for such a judge to believe that judicial review should only rarely be employed as an end run around popular government. So running through Rehnquist's opinions on, on lots of questions, right, assisted suicide, abortion, Christmas displays, and so on, is not, at least in my view, is not conservative activism, but a reasonably consistent fidelity to this idea that our Constitution leaves most of the important and difficult and divisive que uh, questions to the people. So to be sure, as I mentioned at the outset, the Constitution has counter-majoritarian features, it effectively removes some questions from the political arena, but only a few. At the same time, it's a document that reflects strong commitments to popular sovereignty and relies at least as much on constitutional structure as on judicial review 
to constrain majorities' resolutions of challenging moral questions. Well, what about religion? What about the fact that in some local communities, as Professor Laycock explained, certain religious beliefs are widely shared and inform those communities' identities or their sense of themselves and inform the laws through which that identity is expressed? Again, as I see it, the question here is not whether federal courts should ever invalidate local communities' efforts to acknowledge or act in accord with shared religious beliefs. It's how and when they should do so. As a national community, we're committed to the rule that governments can't establish religion or prohibit its free exercise, and I think courts should enforce this rule, even when doing so requires them to, in a sense, interfere with local communities' values. Saying this is easy, the hard part, the very hard part, is giving judicially enforceable content to this rule. Now, in my view, the most important religion-related question that's relevant to our topic is not whether the Ten Commandments can go up on a courthouse wall and not whether, even whether a prayer should be said before a football game. I don't mean to say those are trivial, but it seems to me there are issues that are even more important. The issue, as I see it, is not whether judges should interfere in the expression through law of communities' religious values. It's instead whether judges and governments generally should interfere with the independence and the autonomy of religious communities and institutions. This is the religious freedom question, the one that should matter to all of us who care about pluralism, diversity, and liberty. And I just note that if you want to learn a lot more about this topic, there is no one better to read than Professor Laycock. The development and the testing and the proclamation of diverse values in a liberal society like ours it requires free and distinctive institutions, especially religious communities. So, yes, judges should be cautious but ready to second-guess local decisions. They should be particularly careful, though, about interfering in the internal affairs of those mediating institutions that generate our community's values and that stand ready, at least at their best they stand ready, to challenge the state. Thanks. Thank you, Professor Garnett, for sharing your insights with us this evening. Our last speaker this evening will be Amy Laura Wax, the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Professor Wax graduated from Yale. She also holds a medical uh, degree from Harvard and a JD from Columbia. She trained as a neurologist before uh, becoming a law clerk to Judge Abner Mikva on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And she has also served in the Office of the Solicitor General of the U.S. Department of Justice from 1988 through 1994. She's argued 15 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Wax taught at the University of Virginia Law School before coming to Penn she has written extensively in the areas of uh, social welfare, uh, rethinking welfare rights. Uh, she has also written extensively on the areas of same-sex marriage. She is currently um, midstream in writing a book called Race, Wrongs, and Remedies, Group Justice in the 21st Century. Uh, won't you join me in welcoming Professor Wax to the panel this evening? Oh, thank you uh, for inviting me. Um, 
Uh, As I understood it, my mandate today was to talk about uh, judicial interference with community values. Uh, So my plan in this short time frame, and I realize there's an arms race going on here as to who can uh, promise to speak uh, the shortest time and, in fact, exceed that time, so I will try to, uh, you know, best everyone here uh, in both, I guess. my, my charge here is to talk about uh, the interplay between the judiciary uh, as it's engaged in judicial review of um, law and legal, legal regulation in the area of social welfare rights and community values. Um, and so here I'm going to focus on legal rules and policies that bear on economic redistribution and poor relief. Uh, This is not an area, I think, uh, that students currently know much about, and that in itself is kind of interesting, uh, because it used to be quite a central concern uh, of legal education. Now, what's particularly striking in this area uh, of policies bearing on economic redistribution is how uninvolved the courts are currently uh, in this arena. Uh, And as far as I know, there are no grand plans afoot by advocates for the poor, those concerned with economic and social inequality, to re-enlist the judicial branches in any significant way uh, in the effort to address these problems. And if you visit the website of organizations that advocate for the poor, uh, those websites, uh, those sources bear this out. and no reason to believe that, uh, that courts will make much difference uh, in these areas in the near future. Um, now, that certainly was not always the case, not by a long shot. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how this evolution in the court's role occurred and its implications. Um, Now, in the 1960s and 70s, which I guess is ancient history to many of the people here, um, welfare rights advocates were very eager to use the courts to advance their agenda, uh, which was basically to establish economic rights and to invalidate uh, restrictions on conditions for the receipt of public assistance. And indeed, that's what old-style law school poverty law courses were all about. They were about teaching students how to litigate on behalf of the poor, to expand access to public largesse, to defeat any and all restrictions uh, on such access on the theory that those restrictions enshrined the race and class prejudices uh, of the benighted majority. So what were the specific goals of this agenda? Above all, to eliminate distinctions between the so-called deserving and undeserving poor. Now, as Martin Gillens has documented in his book, Why People Hate Welfare, public opinion polls have consistently revealed that voters overwhelmingly embrace this very distinction. The categories of deserving and undeserving poor roughly track the so-called luck egalitarian divide between those who suffer deprivation through bad luck uh, or forces outside their control and those who are disadvantaged by their own imprudent choices. It turns out that voters don't hate welfare as such. 
They're more than willing to help people out as long as those they help uh, are there in their position because of misfortune and not because of misfeasance. Indeed, I have argued the public can be said to embrace something like a conditional reciprocity for public assistance. There is a robust support for fundamental norms of self-reliance, the notion that able-bodied persons should work to support themselves to the extent they are able, and that everyone should strive to minimize their economic dependency. This distinction between bad luck and bad choices, as translated into poor relief policies, traditionally had two important aspects. First, it took account of beneficiaries' personal conduct, including their sexual conduct, as that might contribute to economic need and dependency. And second, the distinction was attentive to the beneficiary's own role in remaining dependent by failing to engage in gainful employment, that is, by failing to work or by failing to prepare for work. Now, the voting, the voting majority's concern with deservingness and with personal conduct, and this has been uniformly the case, uh, contrasted starkly with that of welfare rights advocates as supported by elite opinion, including elite academic opinion, which was today, uh, which was then and continues to be today almost unrelentingly hostile to the deserving undeserving poor distinction. And here I do draw attention to this divide in public opinion, what the people think, because we often see that as a monolith. But in fact, this is just one area, and there are many, in which majority opinion, the people's opinion, is at odds with what I would call uh, elite opinion, shall we say. Um, elites buying into a wholesale attack on the very concept of dessert itself often take the position that individual conduct is not and should not be morally or legally relevant to deservingness in the economic sphere since the poor are trapped by their social and economic conditions, right? Uh, and the notion that they could do, to do more to support themselves is misguided uh, and delusory. So what was the role of the courts in mediating between these contrasting views on the proper scope of economic largesse? Uh, of public benefits. Over time, the court's role has been decidedly mixed. In a few key opinions in the 1960s and 70s, the Supreme Court placed itself distinctly at odds with popular opinion on the proper limits of public support to the poor through various federal programs, food stamps, AFDC, uh, and also various aspects of Social Security programs. So just briefly, what are some of the important episodes in this saga? First, in King v. Smith, Lewis v. Martin, and other cases, the court struck down something called man-in-the-house rules that many states uh, throughout the country had adopted in, the, in setting the terms of poor relief, that is, aid for families, dependent children, benefits. States like Alabama and California had decided that children of single mothers who were cohabiting with a man would not receive poor relief regardless of whether the man was their father. 
and legally responsible for them, right? Rather, that cohabiting male would be deemed a parent and assigned financial responsibility for the family's support. To make a long story short, the Supreme Court invalidated these regulations across the board. The goal of AFDC, they said, was to support needing children, full stop. Enforcing public morality or satisfying the state's sense of fairness to married fathers of intact families who were responsible for children that they lived with could not be allowed to interfere with this goal. In a second case, which many of you probably read in con law, Department of Agriculture versus Moreno, the court invalidated a legislative amendment. These were not just regulations here. This was a congressional enactment to the Food Stamp Act that forbade households containing unrelated individuals from receiving food aid. This was the so-called anti-hippie commune amendment, right? No food stamps for mixed-sex cohabitation. Said the court, a desire to exclude hippie communes was necessarily motivated by pure animus. It had no valid public purpose, especially in light of the food stamp program's avowed purpose, which was to support farm prices and feed the hungry uh, purposes. Now, there are other decisions like this, but needless to say, they decisively influenced the administration of benefits programs. Political actors at the state and federal level pretty much abandoned their efforts to impose community sexual morality as a condition of receiving relief or to use these programs to shore up or at least not undermine conventional morality. Now, one could argue that the resentments generated by the abandonment of these goals, right, as well as simultaneous increases in welfare uh, and dependency did have political effects. They likely generated a backlash that worked to the advantage of the Republicans and conservatives, and they probably set the stage for welfare reform, right? Uh, but then the question is, what other effects did they have? Now, the key decisions that I have described are really only part of the story. In fact, the courts didn't go nearly as far as they could have or as far as welfare rights advocates wanted them to. Just briefly, first, the court refused to recognize a fundamental right to economic support or public welfare. In any case, second, in San Antonio School District versus Rodriguez, the court turned back attempts to declare economic status a suspect class or to give such distinctions, distinctions based in uh, economic status heightened scrutiny. Third, the court was in some respects more protective of marriage and conventional morality under the Social Security program than under AFDC. So, for example, in Califano B. Bowles, the court said that mother's benefits could only go to the wife of a worker, a deceased worker, but not to a woman who had borne him an illegitimate child. Fourth, although most attempts to enforce conventional morality uh, through AFDC were rejected, there were a few cases that went the other way. And here I'm talking about Dandridge v. Williams, which allowed states to place a cap on benefits to single-parent families despite the birth of additional children. And here the court actually, uh, in a rare gesture, nodded to conventional community concerns with the perverse incentives of increasing payments for each child, right, which ordinary working, 
people did not get, and unfairness to conventional nuclear families, right, which also did not receive these uh, raises. Uh, and family cap uh, type litigation has carried forward this reasoning. Um, finally, under the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program as an act as part of welfare reform, the court has upheld other limits on benefits based on past conduct, criminality, alienage, non-citizenship, uh, and the like. Whoops. Uh-oh. I guess they're trying to send me a, a message here. So what can we say in, uh, about the uneasy relationship between the courts and community mores on matters related to public welfare and economic uh, distribution? I think the way to summarize it is, although initially traditional values did lose a few battles, it's hard to say that public sentiment has decisively lost the war, right? Although there were some opinions that were at odds with traditional values, there were others that shored up traditional values, right? Were decisions like King v. Smith instrumental in changing the course of public welfare, in changing the course of individual conduct? I think that probably in this case, uh, the influence of these decisions was minimal. What we do know is that even though at the time those decisions were, invited, were decided, uh, a majority of the people surely embraced fairly conservative values on sexuality, family structure, dependency, and the like, right? Still, in the interim, liberationist values have gone mainstream. The 60s has triumphed after all, and the sexual revolution has run its course. A central tenet of that revolution is a reluctance to judge others' conduct in areas related to sexuality and family structure and a reluctance to use public policy aggressively to hold people to traditional standards. Thus, although the public has not abandoned the distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor, far from it, they have, over the decades, redefined what is deserving and undeserving. They have redefined the expectations for behaviors that bear on dependency. And the big issues here are sex roles and sexual behavior. Back in the good old days when poor relief and social insurance programs were forged in mid-century, women and mothers were not expected to work. However, they were expected to control their sexuality in ways that would minimize their dependency, their chance of becoming a single mother. Now the consensus has really shifted on both of those. On the question of reproduction, people are deeply ambivalent. Is having a child out of wedlock a choice for which people should be held responsible? Is it something that women don't really effectively control? Or alternatively and normatively, is it a question that the government should in effect have no opinion about and should not interfere with, especially in doling out public financial assistance? We can't really make up our mind, right? But what we do know is that we don't want private sexual morality or uh, coercion with respect to sexual morality enshrined in law. But public attitudes have decisively changed on the question of work. In this arena, the public is more than willing in past decades 
to hold poor women responsible because, after all, mothers across the board work now, right? So why should poor women be different? So what would have happened if the court had never decided King v. Smith, Lewis v. Barton, Department of Agriculture versus Moreno, would the historical trajectory of public welfare programs be different? Would poor relief, would public assistance, would economic redistribution uh, have taken uh, a rather different turn? Were these judicial decisions causally important? Um, my personal view is that some of these decisions were ill-advised, but I concede that the answer is most likely they didn't make much difference in the long run. The cultural juggernaut was rolling, sexual pluralism was on the rise, the family progressively weakening, and the economic expectation of independence for women growing stronger. The courts have probably had, if anything, a minor role in these trends. They didn't foment them. They couldn't stop them. Their decisions were, at worst, a premature anticipation of things to come. Uh, in order to be heard, you need to turn the microphones on, members of the panel. I would first of all invite any of you who would like to to make any uh, comments in response to any of the presentations that you've heard. Well, I suppose I have to say something about Lockby Davy. I, I am not passionately opposed to Lockby Davy. I, I do think it was it, it was a mistake doctrinally, and that its implications are troubling. But it was absolutely to be expected for precisely the reasons Rick says. It was a premature lawsuit. The people who filed it should have known better um, and should not have filed it. Um, and, and, if it, and, and if it stays at the holding that uh, states can have programs of funding private education without including religious education, well, it's discriminatory, but it's, it's not a big deal. The because. Religious schools haven't been getting that funding all these years anyway. Um, the, the implications of the opinion are that the state can choose uh, who to fund and what to fund, can lay conditions on those who take the funding, and that there are no constitutional constraints on those strings um, so that the prospect of funding can be used to buy up a whole lot of religious liberty. Um, and if the court continues down that path, then I would be passionately opposed. Uh, they've got to find a stopping point to, to Lock v. Davey. But the point that Rick made about uh, intense public opinion absolutely influences the court. And whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's a thing that's, that's not, going to, not going to change. I also agree with Rick Garnett, free exercise is much more important than disestablishment. The relevance of disestablishment is, in fact, that it protects free exercise. I think a lot of conservative believers have lost sight of that. But getting the government into running your religion is not a good way to protect your free exercise. And conservatives don't want the government running anything else. Why on earth do they want it running religious services at events all over the country? I've never, ever under, uh, un understood that. Um, and and you know, the, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause were not a compromise between conflicting factions. They were both the agenda of the evangelicals of the 1780s, the Baptists and the Presbyterians. Um, so I've tended to take them both seriously, and, and I wish more folks took them both seriously. But an awful lot of people uh, love one and hate the other. Thank you. Professor Garnett? 
Yeah, just really quick, this is actually a question for Rick Hills. I, I think this distinction between Westphalian and, and sort of Jacobin models of, of rights generation <laughs> is, is really interesting. Um, uh, I wonder, so how do you think it plays out in, in these two examples? First, uh, the Defense of Marriage Act. Right? So on the one hand, it's, it's a national law, but it's one that doesn't impose an answer to a disputed question. It's simply an effort to um, sort of contain the spread of externalities from different communities' choices. Right? So I wonder how that plays out for you. And then another example maybe would be a, a hypothetical amendment to the national constitution. And I realize this, this isn't the one that was proposed, but a hypothetical same-sex marriage amendment, which would say um, that the national constitution will not be understood to require states to, to move toward the recognition of, of same-sex marriages, um, but not prohibiting states from doing so or legislators from doing so. Do you have any sense of how your distinction plays out in those two uh, examples? Yeah, DOMA is an easy case um, for facilitating a Westphalian settlement and protecting states from each other um, and from norm externalization, obviously, is a, an important Article 4 um, goal. Um, you know, and a, a national constitution that would restrain the federal judiciary in this sense, a constitutional amendment that would say you're not going to constitutionalize a right to same-sex marriage, is that that? Yeah, I mean, we would, we would apply to state courts as well when they interpret the national constitution. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think that's sort of, um, you know, shipping coals to Newcastle. Um, the, the notion that any federal court was ever going to <laughs> violate the normal Westphalian norm of, here is, is preposterous, right? No federal judge was ever going to, not, not going to get past the circuit level. Um, and so, I, yeah, sure, if you want to amend the Constitution, fine. But, you know, we got the Senate that clears out judges who are outliers on norms. And the, I just think that it, it would be gratuitous. Um, I, I don't see any danger that... Um, the, uh, any, any court would constitutionalize, and Kennedy made that perfectly clear in Lawrence, the marriage issue. By the way, Bill es Eskridge, my pal, um, strongly believes it shouldn't be constitutionalized, and, and so do I. Um, I happen to be a passionate believer in gay equality. I've litigated some gay equality cases. The very first case I worked on was Romer v. Evans. Um, but I've told my friends um, who support gay equality that the best thing that ever happened to gay and lesbian rights was the popular initiative. Um, it makes the issue prominent. And every time you make the issue prominent, um, you change opinion. And so I think that the little city initiatives, the no special rights initiatives, the fight over domestic partnership has been all to the good. Um, it keeps the issue on the front line. It forces people to confront the issue. Um, it's a major source of activism. Um, and I tend to think that um, people on the left tend to um, underestimate the value of popular democracy for rights. Now, i got to ask Rick um, Garnett a question, which is I, you speak in praise of associational liberty, and I imagine that a case like Dale would be a case that might be attractive to you. Um, I've always been deeply troubled by Dale because I wonder if it makes sense to nationalize an issue as complicated as associational liberty. Um, I think I probably disagree with the New Jersey Supreme Court's definition of public accommodations. But do you think it's wise to nationalize an issue about how to immunize a nonprofit organization from regulation? Um, well, I, we would agree, I think, um, that the Dale opinion is opaque in many respects and um, not easily reconcilable with all the relevant precedents. Um, but, yeah, you know, as, as Doug said at the outset and as I, as I tried to say as well, um, some norms are nationalized, and it seems to me that the, uh, the, given the norm-generating role and the um, 
really the political theory importance of mediating institutions, that um, their ability to choose their own message and select their own leaders is one that's important enough that it ought to be nationalized, recognizing that it's going to make for some, some messy litigation because, as you say, um, different states are going to sort of come at associations in a wide variety of ways, and it's not going to be crisp or clean, but I'm willing to put that in the nationalizing column. May I ask a question, Professor Hills, on your Westphalian theory? Mm -hmm. How would that apply to a case like Dred Scott? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this is, the, um, this is that third condition I mentioned. It's obvious that there's going to have to be some um, minimum level of national rights that define national citizenship. These are the easiest to define in cases where you're dealing with um, personhood, right? You know, um, and so, sure. Um, no, no nation can survive without some kind of minimum level. The great difficulty is going to be for judges to show a level of um, sensitivity and restraint in distinguishing between those things about which reasonable disagreement is possible without undermining a shared sense of national citizenship and those things where reasonable disagreement is not. And if I had an algorithm for that, I would publish it, you know, and, and make major tracks. Um, but it seems to me that um, waving the banner of Dred Scott in the categories of cases that I've mentioned, affirmative action, um, whether or not you give vouchers to parochial schools, whether or not you withhold vouchers from parochial schools, these are not issues even close to magnitude of that nature. They're clearly, and I would also think the case about how we regulate a nonprofit organization. Um, it seems to me in this case it would be very good for judges to um, follow Oliver Wendell Holmes's wonderful dictum. I won't constitutionalize it unless it makes me puke. <laughs> um, and, I, and you know, and, and maybe the puke test is the closest I can come um, to an accurate norm. Um, but um, you know, waving Dred Scott on the, the, these areas, um, I don't think um, is profitable. Justice Holmes had a strong stomach. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think on that note, I'm going to invite any members of the audience who would care to ask a question or make a comment to our speakers to come forward. Would you like to just go back to the microphones? There's, there's microphones and then, yeah. And, and would you state your name and, and your law school uh, or your, yes, go, go ahead, sir. Yeah, had Lawrence, uh, had Lawrence um, 
been decided in an atmosphere where there weren't five states, depending on how you count 14 or five states, that were being trumped, but say 20, I wonder if it would have come out the same way. You'll notice that Kennedy cited no Dworkin articles, but he did spend a lot of time citing what states actually do, both enforcement practices and counting states. And I think, you know, um, the Kennedy's instinct, not only in Lawrence, but in Penry, in Atkins, and all the Eighth Amendment cases, is to look to um, state consensus as a substitute for the Article 5 process. And um, it, you might say it's a prudential virtue. I say it's sort of basically saying, you know, um, due process um, might evolve, but we're going, to ev we're going to try to hold a little Article 5 quote, um, count on the states. And if there's enough states that roughly seem like they've strongly solidified a position in one direction, maybe we'll force the other ones to get in line precisely because that means we're moving to an area where this is becoming much more of a Dred Scott-like situation. Now, I, I think with um, same-sex um, criminalization of same-sex behavior, it is obvious to anyone who had any sensitivity at all to this issue that by the late 90s, criminalizing same-sex relationships was becoming very close to a Dred Scott-like position in this sense. We have major national leaders who are gay. Um, what sense does it make to say we're criminalizing the basic identity of the chair, the current chair, of, um, you know, of Banking and Financial Services Committee, Barney Frank? Um, it becomes a point where there's such a level of acceptance of at least a bare right to exist that not ultimately constitutionalizing a central thrust or consensus becomes very destructive of national unity. Um, and so, you know, I tend to think that um, Lawrence made a lot of sense, but I think it makes sense precisely because Kennedy put his finger in the air and started counting states. I tend to think that rights are majoritarian. Article 5 is a majoritarian process. And the way that the court um, constitutionalizes rights is essentially following the election returns and a good thing, too. The French have a different view, but, you know, I don't live in France. <laughs> Sir, over here. I'm Eric Carter from the University of San Diego. Actually, um, I also have a question, Professor Hills, that goes right along to what you're saying, which is that if essentially if, you're, if you want to be more of a majoritarian, wait for their consensus to, to nationalize a right, well, what's wrong essentially with the constitutional amendment process? Doesn't it do that more objectively, um, more democratically? There has to be a national consensus in a sense to pass it because of the difficulty um, of getting a constitutional amendment rather than leaving it to judges um, and the subjectivity of deciding at what point the consensus is reached. So why not the constitutional amendment process instead of a more judicial activist approach? Yeah, yeah, I've always had the best argument for originalism. I'm not an originalist. I'm a Harlan, I'm a Harlan kind of guy. Um, uh, but um, I think the best argument for originalism is it might make the constitutional amendment process more vibrant. I often think that the Equal um, Rights Amendment was destroyed by the court's late 70s and early 80s decisions providing heightened scrutiny to gender. It simply destroyed all the incentive to, um, that, to follow that process, and that process was enormously useful. So I would like to see the Article 5 process reinvigorated. Um, and, you know, one argument for um, courts withholding their helping hand is um, precisely that it might reinvigorate the Article 5 process. That said, the Article 5 process is clearly among state constitutions, uh, um, world constitutions dysfunctional. There's only one constitution that was harder to amend than the U.S. Constitution, and that's the Yugoslavian Constitution. Um, Donald Lutz did a wonderful survey, um, and uh, look what happened to them. You know, it's clear that we have an anemic amendment process because we have a foolish um, Article 5. The first thing I would amend is Article 5. 
and I would go to much more to a, um, uh, a Grundgesetz method of amendment with simple supermajorities in Congress. Um, but I, I think Article 5 is being destroyed by itself. Gene Meyer. Uh, uh, I had a question. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which one of you this should go to, but the uh, whole, quote, rights revolution in terms, in terms of welfare, in terms of overturning various kinds of anti-loitering laws, the battle kind of between the ACLU on the one side and, and a whole set of, of, of community values on the other uh, had a, you know, for quite a number of years, has been put out a number of major decisions uh, on that Goldberg v. Kelly and other ones. I'm wondering, I'm interested in the reactions to that, um, uh, particularly, uh, uh, I, I guess, I guess from, from from most of you, because it seems to me it, it plays in an interesting way, certainly with your, uh, with, with Professor Hill's Westphalian theory. Uh, and also, in general, with this whole topic of how you balance these type, types of interests. Anyone? Well, I think that um, my view of it is, and this is sort of at a fairly high level of generality, um, is that these these concepts of what rights are fundamental, uh, what, which rights are sort of uh, of lesser importance, uh, should be left to the states as opposed to nationalized. Um, I think that these concepts are uh, very highly manipulable uh, and uh, can be used to advance various political agendas, uh, either of the right or the left. Now, what's interesting is, of course, that and I, I mentioned in my, uh, my little talk uh, that so-called community values uh, is really a cover for communities. Uh, uh, the, the people um, are divided into classes and uh, sort of socioeconomic categories and communities of interest and ideology and the like. Uh, I think there is kind of a sociology of opinion leaders that's quite critical here, which is that law professors uh, tend to have a particular agenda um, on the left. So, you know, they will tend to see uh, the rights that are fundamental and ought to be nationalized uh, in accordance with, with their agenda. So, I mean, this is kind of a, uh, a general comment on how these discussions tend to go. Uh, and I think we need to uh, be aware of the dangers of uh, the degeneracy, shall we say, uh, of some of these categories. Uh, and when I use the word degeneracy, I mean it in the technical sense, uh, not in the judgmental sense. Yes. Um, this is for Professor Laycock. Say your name. My name is Jordan Smith. I got a Notre Dame law. Um, I felt like uh, maybe you were a little too hard on the concept of voting with your feet. And I feel that um, it's not just about the sticks, it's about the carrots, too. And sometimes you go to a place because you really like where you're going to, not, you, not just uh, that you dislike where you're coming from. And um, it, it seems to me that uh, a lot of people come to the United States not just because they're miserable from um, where they are, but because they would rather have a life here. And I would like to see that same kind of thing happen within the United States. And, um, you know, I would like to be able to go to a state where I'll feel most comfortable. 
and it seemed to me like you were just focusing on um, trying to get away from a state where you don't agree with the policies. Um, and I think that would benefit both uh, individuals and states, especially um, the way that states would compete with one another for citizens and votes and uh, tax bases and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I'm not sure we disagree that much. There are many reasons why people move. Uh, but when voting with your feet is offered as a reason not to enforce uh, constitutional rights because judicial review interferes with uh, community values, it puts all the focus on one reason. Right? It says, you know, we don't have to worry so much about protecting rights because if people feel like a right that's really important to them is really being violated, they can just leave. And that's the idea that I was attacking in part because it for that to work, it has to override all the other reasons for choosing a place of residence that you talked about. People move in this country uh, to, you know, for education, uh, for jobs, uh, for climate when they retire, or sometimes before they retire, uh, because their spouse got a new job, uh, for family reasons, uh, and 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 people should not be deprived of that whole range of choices because. Uh, in, in, in some towns, um, you know, their, their religion or their political views or their race or their speech uh, or their lack of citizenship or their sexual orientation is going to subject them to all sorts of hostile regulation or, or, or discrimination. You know, one of the things that national rights do is take those basic questions of, of fair treatment out of the decision about where to move so that people can act on all these other things. Now, another reason people vote with their feet is not so relevant tonight, but it, it's important. It's often what people talk about. You know, pe people vote with their feet for economic and regulatory reasons, and you know, that has reverse redistributive consequences, right? Big, you know, larger businesses are much more able to move than small businesses. Affluent folks are... Uh, you know, if you're being regulated and you want to leave, it's a lot easier to, to, to do that sometimes if, 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 you're, if, if you're bigger. So, so that becomes a, a sort of steady pressure against regulation and against taxes, and that's a good idea or a bad idea depending on which side of the, which side of the spectrum you're on. That's another thing that, that, that goes on, but another way in which people vote with their feet. But all of that, you know, the, the idea that rights are less important because people vote with their feet presupposes overriding all of that and saying the one reason or the dominant reason you should choose to reside is because you, you want a place where the rights you care about will be respected, and that's the idea I was attacking. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hosea Horneman from Liberty University. Uh, this question is for Professors Laycock and Hill. Both of your, some of your statements uh, seem to suggest that uh, with regard to the Establishment and Religion Clauses, there's no inherent tension. Uh, establishment and Freedom of Religion Clauses, there's no inherent tension within those, uh, but they were both uh, suggested uh, as something that was agreed upon by evangelicals from the existing states at that time. <clears throat> how, um, how then do you reconcile, or can it be reconciled, uh, current interpretations of those amendments as, uh, as Professor Laycock, you seem to suggest, uh, with the historical fact that those uh, states that were in existence then and, and for decades after the Bill of Rights continued to maintain state churches at the state level uh, for, for decades and, and 
decades after that, uh, if they were so opposed to any type of establishment of religion, at least as your view seems to suggest, or, or would, would classify that as an establishment of religion at, at their own state level, and that was in fact that collation of that anti-establishment value, how do you reconcile that with the historical fact that, that those types of practices continued for, for decades after ratification? Well, there's a, there's a literal historical question there, and then I take it an implicit interpretive question about, about constitutional interpretation. The, the historical explanation is pretty easy. The states that kept their established churches, um, and, 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 and by that I mean formally established, tax-supported, in Connecticut, 1816, in uh, Massachusetts, 1833, in, in New Hampshire and Vermont until uh, sometime in the early 19th century, um, were states where evangelicals were in the minority. It's where they lost. Um, and the, the battle over disestablishment um, continued over a period of 60 years or so, uh, it, was, it was conducted at the state level. It was not conducted at the federal level. The federal establishment clause uh, was meant to say, don't worry about another establishment. The United States, the federal government cannot create one. Uh, disestablishment in the states was a state-by-state -state process, and everywhere it was the defenders of the old established church, which meant the Anglicans from uh, Maryland to Georgia, and it meant the Congregationalists in New England, um, those established churches which were, you know, the high church rationalist uh, version of Christianity against uh, the new and rapidly growing evangelical denominations, principally Baptists and Presbyterians, a little bit later Methodist, um, and, and some of the smaller groups. Uh, and the, the, the New England establishments were in trouble, they were crumbling, they were highly controversial, they were the subject of political protest and litigation, but they were still alive in 1791, uh, and they continued into the 19th century. By the time of the 14th Amendment, um, they were all gone. Uh, a, na a national consensus in favor of disestablishment was pretty well established, not in the way we understand it today, but in, certainly in favor of getting rid of these formally established churches. The other critically important thing that happened, it doesn't get nearly enough attention in the cases. So much of our argument, uh, of, of a particular historical argument, focuses only on 1785 in Virginia and 1789 in the, in the first Congress. Uh, but the origins of contemporary controversies over government-sponsored religious observances and especially school prayer and over funding for religious institutions and especially religious schools lies in, uh, not in the 1780s, but in the 19th century Protestant-Catholic conflict uh, when Protestant religious observances in the public school became incredibly divisive in the face of Catholic immigration. Um, there were riots. There were churches burned to the ground. There were people dead in the streets. There were election campaigns fought over this issue. Um, and there were constitutional amendments proposed over this issue. And, um, and, and, and the lesson of that 19th century experience was that you know, some of these practices like you know, government-sponsored religious observances were much more controversial in a more pluralistic society than they had been in 1789. And I, I think that's relevant to interpretation. If you're an absolutely strict originalist, 
it doesn't count because it happened after 1791, but I don't think that's a very sensible way to uh, approach, the, uh, approach the Constitution. So in 1789, they did not intend to keep government from uh, saying prayers at public events. I've, I've never claimed that. Um, uh, I, I, do, I, I do think the evidence is overwhelming. It was the evangelicals who wanted government out of anything that was controversial about religion uh, because under the established churches they were losing uh, and they were becoming the new majority. And I, and I do think the lesson of the 19th century Protestant Catholic Bible uh, conflict is that these government-sponsored religious observances turned out to be very controversial in a way they hadn't been at the, at the very beginning. Um, yeah, I want to add to what Doug said because I have a couple of pet peeves. Number one, the Establishment Clause was a federalism measure. It was passed to protect the established churches of New England by the Senator of Massachusetts over Madison's objection. Notice it says there shall be no law respecting an establishment of religion. It doesn't say the United States shall, shall not establish a church. It says the United States shall not disestablish or establish a church. And it was clearly a New England effort to protect the established churches of New England from attacks by people like Isaac Bacchus, the Baptist, who in the Continental Congress made war on John Adams, lobbying to try to get the Continental Congress to suppress the established churches of New England. The Baptists in particular were the largest opponents of um, the established churches of New England. Now, the second pet peeve I have is the notion that anything to do with the scope of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is what actually governs the states, should be controlled by the original understanding of the 1791 First Amendment. That strikes me as deeply preposterous. I do not want to ever hear Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists quoted as an interpretation of a document that was drafted in 1868, right? It might very well be that that document drafted in 1868, known as the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, incorporates whatever the heck that means, the text of the 1791 First Amendment, which only applies to the federal government, and as I said, was a federalism measure. Um, however, it certainly doesn't incorporate the legislative history of that text. And so the notion that we should be debating what Jefferson or Madison thought about assessments in Virginia and trying to construe the 1868 document is something that the sooner it's purged from our constitutional discourse, the better. And I think we'd be much better off focusing on the actual understandings between roughly 1850 to 1871 of um, people's sense of uh, religious um, state relations. And if we focused more on that, we'd learn a lot more um, that would be useful to us in understanding our religious traditions. I've, I've got to say, Rick, unless you found the secret notes of the conference committee, there's no evidence to support the view that it was a federalism provision to protect New England, and Massachusetts and Connecticut didn't ratify it until 1939. Wait, but the, the, the establishment clause, Madison made an effort to try to prohibit um, states from interfering with free exercise of religion. Who vetoed it? The senator from Massachusetts. Um, it seems to me utterly uncontroversial to say that the New England group was the one who was behind redrafting Madison's First Amendment, which is, of course, the real Second Amendment. It was the First Amendment which was later ratified in the late 20th century. Um, but Madison's Second Amendment, our First Amendment, was violently opposed by New Englanders, and it was replaced by a text that was completely different from Madison's text and made him quite upset. And what does that text do? It says, there shall be no law respecting an establishment of religion. Um, it seems to me that you don't need to see the secret notes. It's written on the face of the measure. It's not remotely written on the face of the measure. Nobody, nobody said Congress has power to destroy the Massachusetts establishment. Nobody thought Congress was going to do that. Nobody in New England that I've found was worried about it. 
And it was a special favor for Massachusetts and Connecticut. Why in the world didn't they ratify it? Senator, it wasn't for them. Senator Huntington actually did say he no, thought he that didn't. the federal government would have power. <laughs> over the, I quote, you know, this is a famous quote. He gives a long speech over. He, say, he says uh, the federal government could have obscure powers that could be used to uh, um, to root out or uh, burden established churches. And therefore, I want to limit the power of the federal government um, over religion. I predict some further law review. Uh, articles on this topic between these two professors. Can we take the next question? Good evening. My name is David Santoro. Um, I'm from American University, and this question is for Professor Hills. You stated earlier that you thought that our process for amending the Constitution was dysfunctional, and you stated that the only Constitution more difficult to amend was that of Yugoslavia. So implicit in your comment was that our, our process for amendment is dysfunctional simply because it is difficult. My question is, why do you make that assumption, after all, if the proponents of nationalization of a right believe so firmly in their position, what's the problem with getting off their rear ends and convincing some of their fellow citizens and the you know, validity of their views? Um, and also, secondly, what would you propose as an alternative process for amending the Constitution? Or if we were going to amend the amendment process, what would it be? Um, that's easy. Two-thirds in each house. I go the German way. Um, in Germany, two-thirds in each house does the trick. As to why it's dysfunctional, look, proof of the um, pudding is in the tasting. We don't use Article 5 anymore, and there's a reason for it. It's just too darn difficult, too cumbersome to use. And so, in effect, Article 5 has written itself out of political relevance. Um, it's got too many blocking points. Um, political scientists can quantify those blocking points, and therefore it's simply not used. Um, I would like to see it used much more often, and therefore I would have a German-style amendment process. But I like a nice, I, I like a, um, a populist amendment process, you know. So that's, I would propose that. Um, I guess I have to get it ratified through Article 5, darn the luck. Good evening. Uh, my name is Jared Haney. I go to Ave Maria uh, School of Law right here in Ann Arbor. Um, my question, uh, given the topic today, the topic of uh, judicial interference with community values, uh, if, by the way, the question is for anyone that feels inclined. I don't have particularly any uh, uh, notion of who should answer it. Um, about a decade ago, I spent a couple of years in Brazil and uh, the first thing I noticed when I got off the plane was all of the pornography placed uh, on billboards and everywhere else. You couldn't avoid it. Um, and it seems to me that uh, if there's anything about keeping community of where someone might want to live, uh, some of these other questions we've debated uh, maybe are on the fringe, but uh, one of the things I was most grateful for to get back to the United States was uh, being able to avoid it if I wanted to. Um, I would like to know uh, what some of your thoughts were, particularly uh, given uh, the, the standard in Miller in the 73 case the court heard and decided uh, is based expressly on community standards uh, on, on the notion of being able to uh, states having the uh, legitimate authority to restrict obscenity based on community standards, essentially. Um, that and... Uh, uh, particularly also uh, in light of uh, Brennan's idea, who dissented in that case, saying that there was no good line, therefore uh, we should not be able to restrict it whatsoever. I'll let you fight about who wants to answer. Um, I'll take a shot at that. I'm 
actually have a few thoughts on it. You know, the, the, the Miller decision in 1973 looks like a blueprint for shutting down the porn industry, and just at that point, it exploded. Um, it's the same year as um, Deep Throat, which was you know the first high-budget, widely marketed feature film. And it's a great illustration of the point that Amy Wax made, that law doesn't stand in the way of social movements very effectively. And as the, as the country... Um, as the sexual revolution proceeded and, and more and more of the country became more accepting of, of pornography, it became very difficult to get convictions. Uh, uh, prosecutors didn't invest effort in it. We do invest effort in child porn, um, but hardly anything, hardly anything else. On the other hand, um, the court has never held that there is a right to display pornography on billboards and in public places uh, like, uh, like you describe in Brazil. Um, and it's probably more public now than some people are comfortable with, but you know, for the most part, uh, it's something that you have to seek out. And and I think you know, the free speech clause can uh, that can fit rather neatly into free speech theory in general. Uh, in political speech, where the goal is to persuade people, you have a right to seek other people out and try to confront them with your message. And if they want to avoid it, they have to tell you to stop. Um, I don't think that's the rule with respect to pornography. It hadn't been litigated, but you know, I, I, I don't have much doubt that uh, that laws saying, you know, uh, laws requiring the sort of practices of the industry uh, that you know, have these warnings about nudity inside on the door and so forth, uh, the, those laws would be upheld because it, it's entertainment and there's no need to, uh, no First Amendment value in pushing on people who are not seeking it out. By the way, a city attorney who can't under city of Renton zone out adult uses should be fired. The doctrine is spectacularly um, easy to clear a city of porn. Just look at Ann Arbor. Um, Bruce Laidlaw in the late 1970s drafted Ann Arbor's adult use ordinance, um, making sure that no adult uses are located in Ann Arbor because it can't be located within a thousand feet of umpteen different uses. It turns out there's not a single area except for something that's under a 99-year lease that can be used for adult uses. So you got to go to Ipsy. Um, so, you know, <laughs> not that I tried, but, um, but the, the, the notion that um, our First Amendment doctrine prevents you from zoning out obscenity, I think, is um, fanciful. Thank you. Ma'am, you will be the last question. Uh, my name is Christina Pisani. I also attend Ave Maria. This question is for Professor Hill. <laughs> Sorry, my question was for you. Okay. <laughs> um, I've always thought of uh, our rights, especially our national rights, as being uh, something that's stable. And you, uh, you suggest that we look to a consensus. I was wondering uh, if and when that consensus might be lost, uh, would the right also be lost, in your opinion? Yes. <laughs> um, one of the most important rights that was lost is the rights of slaveholders to bring their um, slaves into Western territories. That was lost with the 14th Amendment. Um, another right that was implicitly lost was the right to pay people less than a minimum wage, um, a national right that was guaranteed um, between roughly, say, Allgaier and West Coast Hotel. Um, and that's because consensus changed. Um, and so I think that, yes, of course those rights will be lost, and they should be. One of the things we should need to realize is that rights are endangered by rights. Slave owners' rights endanger our rights. Um, the right to um, uh, make certain kinds of contracts endangers our rights um, because, of course, against every right is, a co uh, is an opposite right. 
And so I don't think that there's any sense in which um, we should worry that because rights are unstable, rights will be lost. I'd like to see lots of rights lost um, because many rights are rights to oppression. May I follow up? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, is there a check to that? And if so, what would that check be? Yeah, well, you know, um, if you have a good consensus system um, you'll f and a good system of stare decisis, you'll find that things move pretty darn slow. Um, and that's, that's not a bad check. You know, Learned Hand famously said that when the spirit of liberty dies in the people, courts can't protect it. And that's another way of making Rick Hill's point. Thank you, Professor Laycock. On that note, I would ask the audience to thank our panelists for this very spirited and interesting.